You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Here's how it is. The internet got used up, so we started recording a whole new galaxy of podcasts, some rich and flush with production budget, some not so much. The big shows, thems came from NPR, waged war to make everyone sound like Ira Glass. A few idiots tried to fight it, among them myself. I'm Nate Gilmore, host of The Christian Humanist. She's a humanities show, Christian liberal arts class. Got a good crew, professors, a lawyer, press liaison, we even picked up a psychologist for some reason and a bona fide sectarian. There's a pietist, too, took his genius show out of some CWC camp, so they're keeping a low profile. You understand. You got a show? We can record it. Don't much care what it is. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. If you caught that joke, that means that you're going to enjoy this week's episode. We're doing a series of special episodes on Firefly. The Christian Humanist will be the first to take it on. And here comes the second part of the surprise, is the crew that is with me, joining me online today uh, from the world of law and the domestic sphere and from the Christian Feminist podcast, Alexis Neal. Alexis, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Excellent, excellent. And also... From the Book of Nature podcast and also from Saskatchewan, Charles Hackney. Charles, how are you doing today? Horribly, horribly busy, but uh, getting through. Very good, very good. So, for those of you who are listening to your first episode, first of all, I apologize, this must be terribly confusing. (laughs) But we are bringing together folks from all three of these podcasts for these special crossover episodes uh, on the short-lived but much-loved TV series Firefly. Uh, If you're downloading this today on a Tuesday when the Christian Humanist podcast normally drops, you'll be able to to download a special Book of Nature episode tomorrow, and I'm not telling you who's on that one. And then on Friday, a special episode of the Christian Feminist podcast, all three of them featuring uh, crossover casts. So we're having a little bit of fun this Christmas. We're hoping hoping that this is fun for you as well. Uh, since we are hitting leadoff, uh, I pretty much had a blank slate to ask whatever questions I wanted to. And since we have a, a Whedon person on our crew today, Alexis, I'm going to start off with you. For our listeners who are hearing our show before the other crossovers, talk for a little bit about where Firefly falls in the career of the Whedonverse. I know that this show's untimely demise has lent it a sort of cult classic status. But in terms of good entertainment and good art, how does it stack up to Whedon's other projects? Uh, Well, uh, I'll give you the short answer first um, and then uh, uh, sort of a a sideways answer and then then a long answer, if that's all right. 
the short answer is it's not as good as Buffy, uh, and it's not as good as Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. Uh, it's probably not as good as the Avengers movies, and I would say it's not even as good as Cabin in the Woods, but it's certainly better than Much Ado About Nothing. And it's probably on par with Angel and Dollhouse. Uh, some would give uh, those shows an edge. Some would give Firefly an edge. But it's, it's sort of in the middle. Uh, that would be my short answer. Uh, also, I, I will say I know there are brown coats out there, uh, the, the self-described uh, name for the fans of Firefly, who insist uh, with vehemence that Firefly is the absolute pinnacle of everything Joss Whedon ever did or ever will do. Um, but I would maintain that perhaps, like their namesake before them, they are uh, a little overly optimistic about their own merits and maybe uh, underestimating the merits of their competitors. So, and you would um, be wrong. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, that's my short answer. Um, so I think that the best of, of what Whedon has to offer is, is Buffy. Um, and I think I'm, I'm on sort of in good company with that conclusion. Uh, Buffy was Whedon's first show. I'll, I'll try to make this short, but to give you a little bit of information about each of his major projects. Um, Buffy aired in 1997 is when it, when it started um, on the CW, and it was his first big creative project that he had a lot of control over. Um, it, uh, the premise of Buffy the Vampire Slayer was uh, high school as a horror film. Um, that was sort of the hook of the show, um, and it it followed the adventures of the uh, the title character Buffy, who uh, is a teeny tiny blonde teenage girl. Uh, and in another show, she would be Monster Chow in the first act, and we'd never hear from her again. But in fact, she has superpowers, super strength, and she goes around uh, slaying all manner of evil beasties and bads, both big and small. Um, so the show follows her adventures and it's, it's a, a way to think about sort of the coming of age in high school and, and some into college. Um, the, uh, the best season is, is widely, uh, believed to be season three in which Buffy graduates from and destroys her high school. Um, but seasons one, two, four, and five are all excellent, uh, season six and seven, perhaps less so. Um, and this is also, um, it's worth noting the most written about television show, I think to date, uh, there have been articles in both uh, Atlantic and in, on Slate that have, have start, tried to tally up the number of academic articles about the show. And the last count was over 200, uh, more than twice the next most popular show. So people love it and people write about it. And they think there's a lot of substance there as well as the, um, the slaughter of evil bad guys. So uh, that's a little bit about Buffy. Uh, it's also worth noting that this idea had been kicking around in Whedon's head since at least the early 90s when he wrote the script for the, uh, the motion picture of the same name, which was very different in tone, uh, much to his chagrin. Um, but I think Buffy also really benefited from that extra time in the percolator, so to speak. Um, it, it, it's certainly something he had a lot of time to think about. Uh, so that's Buffy. Um, and I should say here as well, uh, Joss Whedon has done a, a fair amount of work in the comic book world uh, with continuing adventures of Buffy, uh, Angel, and some of his other shows, as well as some X-Men comics. I don't know anything about that, so I won't be commenting on it. Um, but I, as far as I know, they are very well respected. Um, so anyway, that's Buffy. Uh, three years after Buffy starts, uh, they spin off Angel um, uh, as well. It's a CW show. It lasts for five seasons. Uh, it struggles a little bit uh, during its whole run because everyone thinks it's going to be like Buffy. Um, and it's not. It's not supposed to be the same. Uh, Buffy was uh, a horror, a subversion of the horror genre. Angel is supposed to be more of a supernatural noir following the adventures of the title uh, character Angel. 
a reformed vampire with a soul trying to atone for centuries of sin and violence by helping the hopeless um, via his private investigators agency. Uh, and most of the time, his nemesis uh, is a, a law firm um, uh, staffed by evil lawyers. So it's, it's definitely a different show. It's supposed to be a little more grown up, less about coming of age in high school and more about trying to make a difference in a corrupt and indifferent world. Uh, it had some excellent episodes, but the overall um, opinion seems to be that it was largely uneven and there were some pretty low lows to balance out the, the very high highs. Uh, it's also worth noting Angel has one of the cliffhangeriest finales of any show uh, when it was canceled <laughs> um, uh, in, in 2004. Uh, so those are sort of the first two of the Whedon shows. While they're both still on the air, Firefly makes its entrance into and exit from the TV world. Um, so I, I think I, I, I find myself wondering if there's an issue of divided attention there where you've got three active shows going on. Uh, Whedon is not the showrunner for all three of them, but they are all his babies. And so uh, there may have just been a lot of balls in the air then. Uh, unlike Buffy and Angel, Firefly is kind of a mixed genre show, a little bit sci-fi, a little bit Western, a little bit of maybe a caper genre, if that's a thing, um, uh, as well as um, uh, a space opera kind of a feel at times. So it's, it's mixed genre, and it doesn't really have that same single hook. Um, I think we'll probably talk about that some today. Best I can do is it's a show that's a lot about autonomy uh, versus authority. Um, unlike the previous two shows, it's on Fox. Uh, it's, a, it's a bigger dog in the network world, and that tends to mean um, some bigger resources in some ways, but also more network interference, although uh, at least that's how the story goes. Uh, that they had a lot of interference from the network that affected their ability to tell the stories they wanted to tell. I think Firefly fans uh, tend to grade the show on a curve because of the wasted potential that they see um, in its its short uh, single season that it had. They love the world, they love the characters, and they're really mad they don't get to spend more time with either of them. Um, So I, I can understand that. I ultimately think it's a little uneven and never really finds a voice. Um, it feels like someone took a lot of really cool ideas and stuck them in a blender without really thinking about how they would fit together. So we've got Reavers and what is it like to be on the losing side of a civil war and government experiments and a space Western and a mashup of Chinese and American culture and a world where prostitutes are venerated and respected. And these are all really interesting ideas, but I don't think they fit together uh, in a cohesive whole that makes sense. Um, but I do agree the potential of the world is is uh, is undeniable. Its premise is very appealing. And uh, and for that reason, I would say it probably does outpace the the level of interest in some of the other shows um, that come later after Firefly. Uh, the characters, I also think, struggle to find their uh, their own personalities and they seem inconsistent at times. But they are more interesting, I think, than those on, say, Angel. So not lev- on the level with Buffy, but possibly uh, on level with with Angel. I think if they'd have been given more time, possibly on the air or um, I think definitely in pre-production, the flavors of the show might have marinated together into something really unique and wonderful. Um, but I just I don't think we ever got there. Um, so that's that's Firefly. The show uh, Serenity comes on um, uh, comes along in 2005 after Angel and Buffy and Firefly are all gone. Um, I think in many ways it's better because it gets to tell a complete cohesive story, but there's no denying that the the product, the end product, is slicker and tidier and the characters perhaps less complex than the original show um, and its fans would have liked. 
Um, so then in 2005, that's the end of the Firefly-verse as far as Whedon uh, has gotten to do so far. In 2008, during the writer's strike, uh, Whedon comes out with Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, a three-part web musical because uh, internet media was not affected by the writer's strike. So you could produce stuff for the web and not be undermining that strike. Uh, it is fantastic. Uh, the premise was uh, Neil Patrick Harris as a likable but incompetent would-be supervillain pitting his wits against uh, the obnoxious Nathan Fillion's Captain Hammer. Uh, and it, it really is tremendous. The music is excellent. The acting is wonderful. It's it's really worth seeing. And I would put it just after Buffy um, as far as uh, the hierarchy of Whedon projects go. Uh, 2009 sees another Fox television show for Whedon, uh, this time Dollhouse. Um, the summary here is that we have the technological ability to wipe the human brain clean and upload it with uh, whatever skills or personalities we want. And there are a number of people who supposedly have volunteered for this. Uh, they're called dolls and they are rented out sort of uh, for a variety of purposes, some of which are, of course, sexual, but not all of them. So it's got a little bit of hum human trafficking uh, stuff going on, um, but ultimately uh, it focuses a lot on the idea of self and identity uh, as one of these dolls starts to retain bits of her various uploaded personalities um, across those uploads. And so uh, what does that mean for her? Who is she really? Um, so uh, it was it was very interesting. I thought uh, the general uh, idea and the general consensus seems to be it was kind of underwhelming. But I, I thought there was a lot of potential and it certainly introduced some very likable actors that I hope to see more of. Um, uh, so I'm not sure if their characters were great or if it was just the actors made them better. Uh, but that was Dollhouse. Uh, it only lasted two seasons, shortened seasons, both of them. Since then, um, Whedon's been primarily focused on the Marvel and Avengers world. He was at the helm of both of the Avengers movies, um, which is a, a pretty big deal because both of them were successful and well-respected. And it's tremendously difficult to write a good movie that involves so many different uh, superheroes, each of which um, have typically headlined their own films. So trying to bring those together in a whole um, is... Uh, is really, really uh, a laudable thing that he was able to do. And I suspect his work with the Avengers would make him uh, much more able to, to weave together the complicated cast of Firefly uh, if he has a chance to revisit that world, preserving their individual personalities, but still making a, a cohesive show. Um, so he's been doing that. He also has the, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. television show is his. I've not seen it, but it seems to be doing well. Uh, since uh, since he started working with Marvel, he has had two other non-Avengers movies or projects. One was a loving send-up of and le love letter to the horror film genre called Cabin in the Woods. It's hilarious and gory and funny and witty, and I loved it. Um, I would probably give it a sort of a third-place billing in his hierarchy, but I know other folks didn't necessarily love it as much as I did. Uh, and then he also did a little vanity project uh, of filming um, Much Ado About Nothing at his own home using actors he'd previously worked with on his various projects. Um, and I, I wanted so much to love this because I love uh, the play. But honestly, I thought it was pretty unimpressive. Um, his version of Much Ado is a dark noir version that I think completely misses the point of the play. And in the process, he ends up gutting Benedict and Beatrice's relationship of any of the, the light of battle and the joy of battle that I think should go with the banter that, that they uh, that they enjoy for, for most of the play. So I didn't love that. I put that at the bottom of the barrel of his projects. 
Um, so yeah, I think I think characters uh, on on Firefly and the, the world that he creates definitely earns it uh, a place in the sort of top of the middle of the pile. Um, but I think I, I can't give it, I can't move it any higher than that. Uh, certainly not past Doctor Horrible, uh, and definitely not past the better seasons of Buffy. Now, Charles, I heard you uh, objecting to the uh, the demotion of the brown coats. Do you want to make a, a quick case? Uh, well, if I'd uh, if I had known I was going to be dealing with someone with no taste, uh, I, I would have prepared. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. <clears throat> um, I, I have I, I have no quarrel with all of the positive things you said about um, about Whedon's other projects. Uh, I I did love uh, his version of Much Ado About Nothing. I thought it was wonderful. Uh, I would put it right up there with the Kenneth Branagh version. Um, uh, and yeah, I I would put Firefly much higher in that ranking. I uh, I, I thought that the uh, the mashup of the uh, the genre elements and the various cultural influences I thought they went wonderfully together. Uh, the characters uh, were um, in some cases almost fully realized nearly immediately, uh, and the interactions between the two were outstanding. Uh, so yeah. Um, uh, I am an unrepentant brown coat uh, who still uh, says a daily curse uh, uh, upon the heads of the Fox executives that canceled the show. <laughs> and see, I'm one of those reprobates who actually likes Angel better than Buffy. So I, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm pretty much out of this conversation at the outset. So I, I could uh, go well, with that. I could go with I mean, <laughs> as, as as long as we all agree here that uh, we are talking about relatively fine gradations among really good stuff um, oh yeah it's yeah. good tv all around yeah uh and and honestly my I, I i don't have any good reason uh my bad reason for liking angel better is that i just can't watch sarah michelle geller on the screen for more than 10 minutes i have to pause it and go take a walk <laughs> <laughs> so still way better than the movie well I, I i don't doubt that i've never actually seen the You've movie never, oh, so. okay well i did um, so I, I have to give my wife credit for all of this, uh, because I saw the Buffy movie, and it mm-hmm. has a, has a couple of cute moments, but overall I just thought it was dumb. And okay. then when I saw that they were making a Buffy TV show, I went, oh my goodness, they made the dumb movie into a dumb show because there's dumb people working in this dumb industry. And so I didn't watch it. And then they did a spinoff of Angel, and I went, my goodness, how dumb is the dumb going to keep doing? They made a they made a spin-off which is going to be dumb of the dumb show which is dumb because it's based on the dumb movie. Dumb da dum dumb dumb dumb. And so yeah and so I didn't watch that. Uh, and then I, I I met this wonderful woman who is intelligent uh, and has wonderful taste, despite the fact that she likes me. Uh, and she really likes the work of Joss Whedon. <clears throat> and she uh, she tells me about uh, how Buffy is actually a very intelligent and well written and well made show. And I'm kind of looking at her and I'm kind of I'm, I'm going, um, okay, nobody's perfect. You. But you know, uh, so she she talked me into it, and so I started watching it, and it was really good. It was not 
dumb, like the dumb movie. Uh, and then <laughs> Angel was not dumb. It was really good. And so by the time this was all finished, I, uh, yeah, it was a full-blown weed night. And uh, then we're watching Firefly. Uh, and I'm, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm dressing up as Captain Hammer for Halloween. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, um, uh, and we, we have the, uh, the Firefly board game. Uh, and uh, I'm writing blog posts talking about the psychology of Firefly, which we're going to get into later. So, uh, yes, so uh, my, my wife and I sort of exist in a virtuous cycle of mutually reinforcing geekdom, uh, in which I uh, I introduced her to Doctor Who and Babylon 5, and she introduced me to the works of Joss Whedon. Very good. Now, the description you just gave, Charles, I mean, reminds me of my own experience with the Friday Night Lights television series. The movie star- starring Billy Bob Thornton was not a bad movie by any means, uh, but the TV show by far outstrips it in terms of character and writing and all that kind of good stuff. So, Well, Charles, the, the first 20 minutes of the series pilot see Malcolm Reynolds and the character later known as Zoe Washburn, two of the central characters undergo a shift from soldiers to outlaws, Talk a little bit of virtue ethics for us here. What room opens up in a narrative for ethical exploration when characters' relationships to their communities shift that radically? Uh, well, this is going to be uh, this is going to be a, a virtue ethics rapidly segueing into narrative psychology. <coughs> and uh, I mean, uh, with the connecting tissue being Alasdair MacIntyre, um, uh, in After Virtue. Uh, McIntyre talks about the unity of a human life in terms of a quest. We are trying to accomplish something. We are part of a story. Um, we so so narrative becomes important. This idea I can only answer the question what should I do if I ask the prior question of what story do I find myself a part? Uh, and this this narrative idea has been picked up not just in virtue ethics but uh, in a number of other scholarly uh, fields in psychology. One of the big names in uh, in narrative is Dan McAdams. Uh, and uh, for any listeners who are interested in this, the the book to look for is his 1997 book, The Stories We Live By. Uh, and uh, McAdams talks a lot about identity. Uh, we make ourselves by stories. We live by stories. We understand ourselves. We define ourselves in story concepts. <coughs> and um, we can understand a lot of the identity issues going on uh, in uh, Firefly, focusing uh, a lot on Mal, uh, using uh, this, th- this question of, of what meaning do we make of our own lives uh, through narrative structure. Now, I can't say as much about Zoe just because she plays everything so close to the vest. Um, Mal, on the other hand, does not really play things close to the vest. He's sort of overt with almost everything. Um, in the so in the first two twenty minutes of the of the pilot, uh, we get the Battle of Serenity Valley, and for uh, those who um, those who are, are new or it's been a long time. <clears throat> this is the part that connects uh, with uh, what you were saying earlier about what um, what what is it like to be on the losing side of a civil war. Um, Mal uh, sees himself as part of an ongoing story, and he casts himself in the character of a victorious freedom fighter uh, 
in the ongoing struggle against the conquering forces of uh, the alliance. But then he loses. Uh, he and he loses everything. Uh, he he's not a he, he saw himself as a soldier. He's not a soldier anymore. Uh, he saw himself as a freedom fighter, but uh, the alliance won. Uh, he uh, he saw himself as a hero, uh, but uh, as far as we can tell, anyway, um, if we were to take a public opinion polls, a lot of people kind of like the alliance. Um, and he in uh, episode two, the train job, uh, we end up in a uh, in a bar on uh, a VA day, Victory of the Alliance Day, uh, and <coughs> um, the brown coats are you know seen by many as traitors. Uh, so the Battle of Serenity Valley shattered his sense of meaning and his sense of identity, and a lot of what's going on. Uh, especially early on uh, in that first season, uh, touches on these questions of identity. So uh, in the train job, uh, when uh, Mal finds himself, uh, along with uh, Zoe and uh, and Jane Cobb, in uh, this bar, in this Alliance-friendly bar, um, one of the one of the locals starts talking big about uh, about the brown coats, uh, and then kind of looks at Mal, gives him the stink eye a little bit, and says, your coat looks awfully brown, and, you know, who are you on? Um, and so Matt, what, how Mal describes himself, he's talking about himself, he says, uh, we're all just folks now. Uh, so on at one level, anyway, he has to distance himself from his previous identity, uh, but the question of uh, how complete that is uh, is brought up in that same episode uh in this case uh, the character badger a uh, small time um kind of low life but in a funny way uh crime lord <coughs> um says to mal that uh, you know you you were a sergeant uh in that war um now you're a captain and uh i think you're still a sergeant you're still a soldier. Mm-hmm. You're still a man of honor in a den of thieves. Uh, so, um, if, if we take this, if we take these sort of you know, um, sort of contradictory um, things, uh, we see that Mal's sense of identity is in a state of confusion. Uh, sometimes he is. Uh, he, he is one character, and sometimes he's another character because he doesn't even know. He doesn't really know himself. Um, who he is. Um, he looked at from uh, Dan McAdam's perspective, uh, McAdams talks a lot about uh, the the the, ca- the characters that we cast ourselves as in our life stories. And what we see, especially in these first couple of episodes, is Mal is he's just trying to get by. He's just trying to stay flying. He's just trying to uh, get by staying under the radar uh, and away from Alliance notice. Uh, And uh, in in McAdam's work, uh, we would say that Mal cast himself as in the role of the survivor. Uh, And the survivor is uh, an unhealthy self-concept uh, because if all you see yourself as doing is surviving, 
that is that that is a role that has neither agency nor communion. Uh, there are no powerful relationships built into that self-concept as there would uh, in other. Uh, uh, other identities that we could cast ourselves in, uh, like a protector or a nurturer or something like that, um, <coughs> and agency, uh, the, the the sense of uh, the sense of power, the sense of uh, going somewhere and pursuing an agenda. Uh, he doesn't have any of that either. He's just trying to not die, uh, and can't see beyond that for himself. And so he ends up, he, he starts the series uh, at a very low place, uh, having, uh, having no agency, having no communion. Um, we see him start to establish some important relationships with this crew that he picks up. But then by the time we get to the Serenity film, uh, we see uh, that in, in the um, interim, I think it's been oh, six years in uh, the inverse uh, timeline, something like that. I don't remember exactly how long it's been, but there's been a, sp a span of time in between um, uh, Firefly and Serenity. Uh, he's at a worse place now than he was at the beginning of uh, Serenity. Uh, his sense of agency has been uh, broken even further. Um, he sees himself, uh, he, he is a victim. He is just trying to get by. He's scrambling to survive. Uh, and uh, in terms of communion, in terms of uh, reaching out to establish relationship with other people, he's driving his friends away. He drove Shepard Book away. He drove Inara away. Uh, the um, the possibility exists. I mean, uh, Zoe, no, not Zoe, Kaylee. Kaylee talks about uh, how if this keeps up, he's going to end up driving everybody else away. Uh, so he's in. He's heading to an even more deeply unhealthy place. Now, one of the uh, one of the good things about the film is that w uh, the film is a turning point for Mal's character. Uh, he starts to find agency. He starts to have an actual agenda. Uh, he gets a sense of his own power. We have that great moment where uh, he decide he he decides that uh, he is going to in, in a sense he's going to go to war uh, against the alliance, and he is going to stand up for the people uh, who are their victims, uh, and he. He is not going to just survive, uh, and it, here we get that really great line that um, so many of us who are fans of the show uh, latch on to. Uh, he says, I aim to misbehave. And all of the, the Firefly fans, we start fist pumping when he starts doing that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm uh, and he does. He does great. And uh, he gets a renewed sense of communion. He reconnects with his crew. Uh, we see a deepening of the relationship. He reconnects with Inara. Uh, and then at the end of the film, he speechifies uh, with River about the power of love. Uh, so... <coughs> that's sort of... that. that that's what I see there for uh, from a mostly psychology um, perspective uh, about what's going on with uh, the the aftermath of uh, the character being uh, disjointed from his uh, prior narrative, from his prior relationship to his community. Mm -hmm. Well, Alexis, I want to keep rolling with Mal, but I want to bring in another character. I have to admit that I've got a certain guilty affection for Jane Cobb, that who uh, Charles mentioned in passing there. We all have He's, an affection for Jane Cobb. He is the most obviously loathsome character among the show's main cast. Now, Mal and Zoe certainly undergo some radical shifts in their relationships to the Alliance and to political factions, but Jane's 
doings, I'll just call them that, on the Serenity provide an interesting smaller scale and analog to them. Now, here's my question. Why do we viewers see his shifts in loyalty with so much less sympathy than we see in Mal's and Zoe's? Well, I I actually want to push back a little bit against that because I don't see Mal as more sympathetic than Jane. Uh, Mal drives me up a wall. I think he's pompous, self-righteous, and hypocritical. Uh, and in many ways, Jane is actually more sympathetic because he doesn't tend to be any of those things. Um, so I realize that I may be very much in the minority here, but I think Badger is actually dead right when he uh, uh, criticizes Mal for thinking that he's better than everybody else, even when he's exactly like everyone else. Um, so, yeah, I have, there are countless examples I could provide of that. But uh, I think Charles makes a really good argument that that's a deliberate creative choice uh, flowing out of Mal's history. Maybe uh, it's hard to know how much of that was creative choices and how much of that was network interference that caused uh, apparent inconsistencies of character. I don't know, but nobody else seems to be aware of his sort of all over the map character. Uh, nobody else seems to acknowledge that. Uh, we seem to be expected to believe him when he says, I am this kind of person, uh, and then not remember that when later he proves himself not to be that kind of person at all. So, uh, and uh, I would say Jane actually uh, is unapologetic and self-aware about his own moral ambiguity and grayness. He's honest that he about his uh, willingness to betray anyone uh, if offered the right price. His priorities are clear. He's undependable, but he never says he's otherwise. Um, and to the extent that he is mistaken about himself, he usually thinks he's worse than he is, whereas Mal, I think, always thinks that he's better than he is. Um, plus, he's played by Adam Baldwin, and I'm not made of stone. So, um so, yeah, that's my little pushback there. I actually think Mal uh, gets more credit than he deserves and Jane doesn't get enough. But I think there are three reasons why we tend to be more sympathetic to Mal than Jane. And a lot of them Charles has already uh, highlighted. Uh, but to start off, the people Mal betrays or considers betraying or is disloyal to, uh, it's almost always them. People who from the beginning are presented to us as not us. They are the alliance or they're other criminals who are actually Shady criminals, not super awesome good criminals like the uh, the crew of Serenity. Um, and so when he betrays them, it doesn't feel as bad. Uh, but when Jane considers betrayal or actually does betray people, it's he betrays us. He betrays other members of, of the Serenity crew. Um, and that just doesn't feel as excusable or pardonable to us. So I think part of it is who they're considering uh, shifting loyalty about. And then also, um, as Charles pointed out, we have all of these reasons why Mal is the way he is. He's this tortured hero and he's seen so much suffering and don't we feel bad for him? And he's just trying to find his way. Um, and we don't get that for Jane. Uh, all we know is that he was willing to throw over his previous crew for money. Uh, and he seems perfectly willing to throw this crew over for money should the opportunity arise and the price be good enough. So we don't we don't get any kind of backstory or explanation. There's no uh, no discussion of what he sees his narrative as if he even is capable of grasping such a concept. Um, and so we, we don't have any reason to empathize with or, or have sympathy for him because he just he kind of exists in a vacuum of who he is now. We don't know who he was. Um, so we don't have any kind of. Uh, a uh, narrative excuse for him. Uh, and then also, I think the third reason is uh, when Mal kind of uh, vacillates all over the place, uh, usually he's looking um, at or at least considering other people. So he's not just uh, in it for himself. He's thinking about keeping the serenity flying and, and having food for the crew to eat or um, the poor settlers in the in the hinterplanets or, or whatever it is. 
um, his moral calculus is, I think, dubious at best. And I think his moral compass seems to be constantly shifting. Uh, it kind of drives me nuts. But uh, it does seem to at least consider other people uh, and not just himself. As far as we know, Jane's only motivation is his own interests. Um, so I think that makes him less human to us and thus less sympathetic. Uh, and the I think we can track our increasing sympathy with him with the inclusion of sort of his care for other people. So when we find out that he happily accepts a gift of a homemade hat from his mom, uh, our hearts swell with affection for him uh, because that's a humanizing touch. Or when we find out that some of that money he so greedily accumulates, he is sharing with his family, um, that is also a humanizing touch. Um, for all we know, the reason he wants all this money is because he's funding his entire family and their survival depends on him. We just don't know that. Um, so because of the sort of radio silence regarding his past life and his inner life, such as it is, we don't we aren't given any reason to be sympathetic toward him. But we get that in spades with Mal. And so he gets a free pass on all of his uh, totally shady shenanigans. Um, but again, I, I want to hit him with a brick. So um, <laughs> that's that's me. Well, it's interesting. Too because the, per- the person that <laughs> Jane betrays. Uh, is the, you know, doe-eyed Simon. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that's part of the picture, too, is that, you know, uh, the people that Mal double-crosses, you're right. I mean, they are torturers, and they are genocides, and they are pimps, and they are, you know, all of these wretched people. Uh, whereas Simon, no matter how irritating he is, uh, you never really get the sense that he is morally wretched the way that those other folks are. Now, Charles was just growling while I was trying to say that, so Charles, uh, chime in here. We have very different moral evaluations of Mal. <laughs> uh, yeah, what you see as vacillating, I see as complexity. Um, what you, I, and the, I, I'm, I'm not even willing to use the word betrayal. I mean, is anybody really going to argue uh, that I get because you know? Betrayal is a morally reprehensible act. It is a breaking of loyalty. Uh, and is anybody really going to say that Mal should have actually uh, handed over the medicine to Niska and just let the settlers suffer? I mean, you, you put people in morally complex situations... And yeah, you're not always going to get, uh, you know, cookie cutter moral, uh, reactions, you know, with somebody always following a, the, a precise set of rules. Uh, you are going to get, uh, a, a variety of outcomes. And yeah, I, I, I am, I, I will stand in between you and Mal and I will take that brick. Um, <laughs> That's fair. I, I, I don't necessarily always have a problem with the choices he makes. I have a problem with the way that he then justifies it and tries to say, uh, so he's, he's deeply shocked, say, that Niska is somehow upset that a refund uh, is not enough. Um, but if you hire someone to do something and they don't do it or they do it and then they prevent you from actually getting what you want, uh, they can't hire someone else now. Uh, so Niska is wrong, but Niska is not necessarily wrong to be dissatisfied with a refund as a significant, uh, as, a, as a sufficient um, um, 
you know, way of making up for, for Mal's decision. Uh, I don't have a problem with Mal maybe sticking up for Inara when someone treats her horribly. I have a problem with him doing that while he calls her a whore. Um, I have a problem with him claiming to be rescuing Simon and River as a, as a big hero and, and criticizing Simon for ever doubting his loyalty uh, when moments before he was totally considering not helping them. Um, no, and, he wasn't. And so I think I think that's where I have the problem where he says, I am this man, and then he doesn't behave that way. And then he gets mad at people for implying that maybe he's not the man he says he is. Um, and so it's that, it's that self-righteousness that galls. I wouldn't mind if he did all those things if he was more honest about um, – about who he is, but he, I just I think he is deluded and and takes to task people who actually have the the nerve to question his self concept. Right, and see, I guess I take the overall project as framing Mal within the trope of irony when it comes to his own self regard. I think we as viewers are intended to see the elevated self regard that he has and to you know stand somehow above that. So I mean I. I guess I enjoy Mal more than you do, Alexis, simply because I don't take him as seriously as he takes himself. That's that's fair. I just I would love to see another character be aware of this and kind of give the wink to us and say, isn't he crazy to think that he's this kind of man who only kills people in a fair fight unless they're bound and he wants to kick them into the engine? So it's it's it would I would. I would buy it as a creative choice and a, and a representation of irony if somebody else on Firefly didn't seem to say, oh, yeah, Mal, he's just this stalwart man of honor uh, among thieves. Nobody else seems to be in on the joke, so you I'm not really sure Shepherd, it's supposed to be one. You don't think Shepard Book is? I don't. I think, okay. I, think, I think they're just having a sanctimoniousness off between the two of them. <laughs> oh... <laughs> All right, all right, all right. I'm going to pick this up just so that we can talk about some... Charles. All right. Char down, Charles. Down, Charles. All right, all right, down. Okay, down. I'll be down. Right. Charles, you wrote a series of blog posts a few years back about religion in Firefly and about the tense relationship between Shepherd Book, who we just mentioned, and Mal Reynolds. What kind of religion is Book carrying around the verse, and why is Mal having none of it, and why, nonetheless... Does Book promise Mal a special corner in hell in the episode <laughs> R. Mrs. Reynolds? <clears throat> well, I'll, uh, I think I'll do that in reverse order. Um, <laughs> I figured you might. Yeah. The, uh, okay, so uh, the special hell. <clears throat> um, so in, in R. Mrs. Reynolds, uh, we get uh, a character whom uh, we later come to know as uh, Yosef Bridge. Uh, who is a, we find out later that she is a con artist, but at the time, uh, she appears to be, uh, a, a naive, um, young woman who has been, uh, quite literally, well, not exactly sold, but given, uh, to Mal, uh, as a wife, uh, in connection with, uh, a job that they did, uh, unbeknownst to him, he just, he kind of, you know, he, he, they've taken off and then he turns around and, yeah, who are you, who are you? What are you doing on my ship? Um, and she keeps talking about how they're married and they're supposed to live as man and wife because they're married because, because they are, because they're married and, uh, and, um, uh, book gives him the best look and, uh, Mal and, uh, just sort of reminds him of the, uh, deep moral scumminess of actually agreeing to any of this, 
uh, and says that if he takes sexual advantage of her, he is going to go to a very special level of hell, uh, one reserved for child molesters and people who talk at theaters, uh, which I have often been reminded of when I've been around people who talk in theaters. Uh, as for the, the the type of religion that book is carrying around, uh, this gets a little bit interesting and uh, a little bit inconsistent. Uh, I could go off on a whole thing about Whedon and religion, and there have been articles and uh, all kinds of stuff written about uh, Whedon's take on religion. <coughs> um, when the characters were cast, uh, the oh, and I'm blanking on his name, the actor who plays uh, who played Book. Glass. Um, sorry? Ron Glass. Glass. You're right. Yes. Yes. Um, wanted to w- wanted to play uh, Shepherd Book as uh, almost Buddhist uh, with the kind of religion that he had, but uh, uh, Whedon uh, uh, shut that one down because the idea is that Inara uh, is supposed to, uh, uh, to supposed to be a Buddhist uh, and wanted Book to be a full blown Christian. Uh, and so we get uh, uh, Shepherd. So the Shepherd is his title. Uh, he's uh, uh, just come out of a time uh, spent an, uh, at an abbey, uh, and uh, he wears a collar that is deliberately meant to be reminiscent of a, uh, a priestly collar. <coughs> uh, and he is supposed to represent Christianity. Not that he does that great a job of it. Uh, instead, we get. Sort of uh, the, the Christianity that I imagine Joss Whedon would like Christianity to be, <laughs> uh, which is uh, a sort of uh, a watered-down liberal uh, version of itself that has no connection to truth. Uh, in the episode uh, Janestown, uh, we get a chance to deal with this is- issue directly uh, when River has one of her more interesting moments uh, and decides to take a pair of scissors to uh, Book's uh, Bible uh, on the grounds that she says it doesn't make sense. And instead of actually engaging with the concept uh, and trying to have a real discussion about that, uh, he com- uh, Book completely sidesteps it and uh, making sense is irrelevant. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be true. Uh, the only thing that it's about is believing in something. And that's pretty much it. If you believe in something, then that's that's what it is. It, because you believe in it. Uh, because that's good. Uh, and we get this again in uh, the, the film Serenity. <coughs> um we uh, yeah we get uh, there is an attack on uh, the the colony uh, where uh, where Shepherd Book is living and uh, Book is uh, uh, he he is lying there dying uh, and they have there 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 is a brief interchange between him and Mal about faith uh, and uh, Book's words uh, on you know basically his last words were I don't care what you believe in. Just believe in something. Mm. And that's pretty much what we've got for book. Um, it would be, yeah, it, it would have been something to uh, continue the series and try to explore this further and uh, kind of continue to play out some of these themes and see, you know, uh, in, in what way could they possibly be made to make sense. <coughs> um 
Now, um, as for Malcolm's uh, connection to uh, to books religion, that gets more fun. That gets interesting because now I get to go all psychology on this. Uh, and yes, I did author a, a series of guest blog posts, and uh, we'll post links to those uh, those posts in the show notes. So uh, those of you who are interested can uh, get uh, more information, and I cite my sources uh, if you want to go look stuff up. Uh, one of my areas of research is the psychology of religion. Uh, I've done some work. I've published some stuff in that area. It's uh, something that I find fascinating. I'll also teach uh, some psychology of religion. Uh, it's some really good stuff. Uh, and within the psychology of religion, uh, there is uh, a small uh, but but fascinating and growing um, subset of that, uh, the psychology of atheism. Uh, sort of taking some of the same ideas that we use to try and understand what's going on uh, when people believe and uh, try to find out what's going on, what wh why people don't believe, why people disbelieve. Um, I, I am exercising a tremendous amount of restraint in this one because I have hours worth of material and a tendency to launch uh, when we get on a topic that uh, I, I find professionally fascinating. Here's what I will do. <clears throat> um, aside from saying, people go read the blog post. Um, let's start with the Battle of Serenity Valley. So the basic setup, uh, in that pilot episode, uh, we see Mal as uh, what appears to be a committed Christian. Um, though his faith uh, falls within what the, uh, the, the, the great founding psychologist of religion, Gordon Allport, would call the immature religious sentiment. Uh, I'll get back to that in just a sec. <clears throat> uh, one of the characters uh, asks Mal whether or not they're going to get out of this, whether or not they will survive the battle, uh, and Mal pulls a cross out of his shirt and says, you even got to ask, uh, and later when he's about to um, uh, do something uh, brave and foolishly heroic, he kisses the cross uh, before he takes off. Um, he re refers to uh, backups as angels. Um, so... He, he, as far as we can tell, he is sincere in his belief, uh, and uh, the, the, the losing the Battle of Serenity Valley shatters this. Um, and I would okay, so now I'm going to turn to Gordon Allport. So Gordon Gordon Allport is one of the great psychologists of religion. He's one of the great psychologists. Basically, um, the, the entire field of social psychology. And personality psychology, uh, for the most part, the whole thing was his idea. Um, a major player in uh, early uh, 20th century psychology. Uh, and he presents some ideas in his 1950 book, The Individual and His Religion, that uh, we're still working with in the psychology of religion today. We further developed it, and we're looking at it in greater detail and sophistication and complexity and stuff like that. But... Um, one of the things that Allport wants to do is he wants to distinguish between the mature and immature uh, forms of religion. Uh, and uh, religious maturity is self-reflective. Uh, it is uh, productive of a stable and consistent morality. Uh, it is uh, coherent, but also well-differentiated. It is uh, confident, but also humble. Uh, that's not really what we see with Mal in this uh, episode. Uh, rather, we see um, some of the characteristics of Allport's uh, ideas about immature 
uh, religiosity. And religious immaturity is less thoughtful, it's less reflective, uh, it's more self-centered. <coughs> so this might make you happier, Alexis. I'm about to say bad things about Mal. Um, I, I see Mal's faith as tremendously immature. Um, the immature religious sentiment uh, involves uh, using religion for personal gain. Uh, so, for example, if you ask somebody the question, why do you go to church, they might answer something like, the, the, the happy music makes me feel good, uh, and uh, my family goes there, uh, plus it's a great place to meet nice women. Um, rather than the, the, the mature uh, religious sentiment, uh, what, you ask the person, why do you go to church? They'll say, well, to worship and learn about God. Uh, the, the, the point is actually the point. Um, <clears throat> Mal, on the other hand, seems to have tied his faith into success in battle. So we see the immaturity in this, uh, and we also see the unreflective uh, and uh, unthinking uh, nature of this form of religiosity. Uh, because if Mal had taken uh, ten minutes to do any kind of homework, uh, he would have found out that uh, believing God to be on our side it ha is is not and has never been uh, any guarantee of success in battle or success in any other worldly uh, domain. Uh, but one of the things that Allport found in his investigations is that uh, immature religion is fragile. Uh, it is more easily broken uh, by uh, the turns of events in a person's life. <clears throat> now, some more recent work uh, in this, uh, I would turn to the work of Julie Exline. Uh, she is, oh, I think she's at Case Western. I might be wrong about this, but I think she's at Case Western Reserve University. Um, uh, her work has uh, looked at how uh, some people will respond to suffering by becoming resentful of God. Uh, and the resentfulness of God for allowing the unfortunate event to occur uh, will become anger against God, which becomes a desire that God not be there, uh, which becomes a form of uh, uh, what some uh, some have called an emotional atheism. <clears throat> on this, no I'll, I'll pause for a moment on this note and just say. Um, when I get into this psychology of atheism stuff, one of the things that uh, we have to pay attention to, and I, I go over this with my students and uh, when I give presentations on this and I talk about this stuff, um, there is no one theory that will explain 100% of cases. And even when we find a specific individual to whom this theory does apply, 100% uh, of that individual will still not be explained by that theory. Uh, so... Uh, when I start talking about some of this research and some of these general trends uh, and these uh, commonly uh, observed patterns, uh, there is a, a tendency among some people to come back, yeah, but I know a guy. Uh, so that's not... That, that, that's not where I'm going with this. I am not trying... So when I talk about emotional atheism, I'm not saying that all atheists are atheists for this reason. I'm just saying a substantial portion uh, are... Uh, and have that as one of the reasons. <clears throat> and uh, we get a couple other things going on here. So first off, we get um, uh, the fragility of his um, immature religion as a predisposing factor uh, to his loss of faith uh, following the loss at Serenity Valley and uh, playing into X-Line's work on uh, um, becoming angry and resentful against God uh, f when we have lost, which is something that which w we see. Um, 
uh, Mal, Mal specifically uh, tells uh, Book that he is welcome on the ship. God is not welcome. Uh, so that's a little bit of a, I mean, there's an emotional tinge to that line uh, that I think plays into this particular theory. Uh, another predisposing factor uh, is family background. <clears throat> so I'm going to start with some Freud here because this gets fun because anytime we bring in Freud, it gets fun because he's weird. Um, Freud's take on the psychology of religion. So I, trying to find out why people believe uh, in God. Um, I'm not going to go too much into the details here, but he connects it to father issues. Uh, the Oedipus Complex comes into this. Uh, if you want to get really weird, you could uh, go look up his primal horde theory. But uh, in any case, he sort of... Uh, he. he pilfers uh, Feuerbach's projection hypothesis uh, and says that people believe in God because they are essentially uh, projecting their daddy issues onto the universe. They are projecting their desire for a powerful and benevolent uh, protector, provider, uh, father figure. <coughs> and uh, the psychology of atheism connection, uh, first we get some of this in Gordon Allport, but uh, more recently... Uh, in uh, uh, the work of Paul Witz, who, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm shooting from the hip here again. I'm trying to remember. I, uh, he, I think he was at NYU, and now he's in Washington, D.C. with the Institute for Psychological Sciences. I think that's right. Um, uh, for those who are interested in this one, uh, his 2013 book, Faith of the Fatherless. Uh, basically, the idea here is to continue Freud's logic. So if the desire for the father motivates belief in God, uh, what about those who have um, a resentfulness of the father? Uh, could, and again, this is not 100% of all cases, but uh, in some cases, uh, it could be that uh, people uh, disbelieve or stop believing <clears throat> because they are projecting their less than entirely healthy uh, daddy issues. Uh, Onto God. Now, uh, in, in Witz's work, uh, some of the stuff that he does is he takes a look at uh, the biographies of a number of prominent atheists. He takes a look at Freud himself. He takes a look at Sartre. He takes a look at Camus. He takes a look at uh, um, um, he, he takes a look at, at a number of uh, figures. Uh, interestingly, three of the four so-called uh, four horsemen of the new atheism fit his theory. Uh, and the only reason, well, and the, the fourth one, we just don't know because we don't have uh, the background details on this one. But anyway, um, <coughs> what Witz has found was a substantial number of atheists uh, have fathers who were in some way uh, defective. They were abusive or distant or uh, they uh, abandoned them or they died. Uh, in the case of Mal, in the episode Our Mrs. Reynolds, so uh, again going to um, Yo Safbridge uh, showing up, uh, Mal has a, a vulnerable moment in which he starts talking about his childhood uh, with, uh, at the time she's calling herself Saffron, <coughs> and uh, he, uh, he mentions uh, growing up without a father figure, uh, and that would play uh, directly into uh, this, this Freud Allport Witz uh, psychology of atheism. Now, there's more that I could than I, that I could do going off here, but uh, I, I'm taking a look at the clock, uh, so I'm going to I'm going to stop at this point and just uh, 
tell people, you know, find the blog posts, um, post comments on the uh, the show notes and stuff, and we'll, we can talk more. Right. There will certainly be links to those blog posts as well as to some of the other things we've mentioned here in the show notes, so no worries on that front. Um, Alexis, I want to take a turn here and take a look at the series in terms of the dialogue. Uh, I know that one of the reasons I enjoyed this show so much is the same reason that I enjoyed HBO's Deadwood, namely because of the unforgettable one-liners, the set-piece speeches, and other exhibitions of rhetoric that seem out of place in a TV or a movie western, and therefore, I mean, they are enjoyable because of that dissonance. What does the dialogue in Firefly share in common with other Whedon projects, and is there anything that this facet of his work can claim as its own? Uh, well, certainly there are some unique things um, about Firefly. Uh, I will say Joss Whedon, his calling card is his dialogue, so there's there's a lot to cover here. That's, that is where he is most at home, is in writing dialogue. Um, the two unique pieces, I think, for Firefly are the use of the Chinese language and the use of sort of old-timey Western speak. Um, and so I want to talk about each, uh, a little bit about each of those. Um, the Chinese words uh, and, and Chinese language, uh, it's very interesting on, on a couple levels. On, on a practical level, it allows Mal and company to use rough language without running afoul of the FCC. Uh, we, the viewers, <laughs> know that they're swearing, but nothing that they say is going to um, get them in any trouble um, being on a network. So that's, that's a very handy practical um, aspect of that particular linguistic tick. Um, it's also moored, uh, and they did an excellent job mooring this in, in a plausible narrative explanation. That is that the only real cultures that survive the using up of Earth are the Chinese culture and the American culture. And so what emerges is sort of a, an amalgam of the two. Um, and, and we see that um, primarily through the use of these Chinese words and phrases uh, and then also various um, uh, visual nods to, uh, quote, Asian design uh, in costumes and in set pieces. So we get lots of kimonos and paper lanterns and, and things like that. Uh, it's a really clever conceit, uh, but I do think it's a little bit undermined by what I think is the complete absence of anyone of Asian, uh, Chinese or East Asian ethnicity uh, in the show. Um, so somehow the culture survives, but the people do not or, or, or something. Uh, we see a few, I think, in, in Serenity, but but not really in, in the run of the show itself. Uh, in fact, this absence is so marked that when we watched it the first time, um, my husband uh, was prepared for a big reveal where in the Reavers were the Chinese. And that is what had happened. And uh, it was going to be this this huge exercise in xenophobia and, and it was going to go in obviously a complete different direction than it ultimately did go. But there is this complete absence of, of Chinese persons uh, in a world that is uh, influenced largely by the Chinese culture. So I think that undermines the idea, but the disconnect, um, so the disconnect between uh, the influences and the characters is, is striking there, but it does work well to indicate um, sort of the passage of time and, and the using up of earth and the combining of cultures and all of that. Uh, so that's that's the use of the Chinese language. Um, they also use a lot of old-timey Western speak. Um, it functions, I think, as a verbal cue to tell us, hey, we're in frontier land. It's a rough-and-tumble world. Uh, there's lots of moral ambiguity and scrappy heroes, uh, and that's sort of the reminder of the Western side of the show, even as we're um, running around on spaceships. Uh, so I think that that helps uh, as a verbal cue, uh, and it does make for an intriguing contrast uh, with the futuristic set pieces. Uh, sometimes it even 
I want to say it almost reminds me of steampunk and there's this, this sort of the smooshing together of the, of the old and new and creative ways. Um, I know some viewers found it implausible and anachronistic because uh, a lot of the old timey phrases that they use are already extinct. So it's not really clear how they could have somehow been revived uh, in the future. Um, but I'm actually willing to make that particular imaginative leap. Um, because of a stylistic choice that's being made. Um, Deadwood used anachronistic modern profanity to keep its uh, characters from sounding cartoonish. Um, I think Firefly is doing the same thing sort of in reverse. It's using anachronistic old language to associate its characters with the Old West, even though uh, chronologically they are uh, far in the future. So that's the old timey language uh, aspect of it. Uh, and, and those are the two aspects that are unique to Firefly. Uh, however, those two elements are woven together in what is really um, just uh, a less unique uh, form that is the Whedon dialogue. Um, I, I want to take a, a moment here to, to address the idea of Buffy speak. Uh, so Buffy speak uh, is supposedly created for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the show, although it did exist um, in many ways in, in other forms before that. But that's what brought it to, uh, to public uh, attention uh, to some degree, at least for modern audiences. Um, so some of the, the characteristics of Buffy speak are sort of the, the random uh, additions of suffixes and the, the swapping of parts of speech, turning verbs into nouns and nouns into verbs and, and all of that. And a certain amount of meta speech uh, where you, you sort of talk about what you're saying in, in meta terms. Um, those who are familiar with the show, I think, will we'll know what I'm talking about. It's, it's hard to describe uh, without getting into a lot of specific examples. Um, it works really well on Buffy because Buffy is a show about teenagers talking the way teenagers might conceivably talk. Um, this is actually linguistically, this is actually a valid way to introduce slang because historically teenagers are a, a big source of slang. New slang often is introduced by teenagers uh, sort of across time. That's been a pattern that we've seen. Um, so it makes sense that new terms and new slang would be coming in through these these teenagers. Um, so it works there on a linguistic level. Uh, and the tone of Buffy speak matches the characters who use it on Buffy. Uh, it's it's in tone. I think it's youthful, juvenile, uh, optimistic and slightly innocent. So it works really well uh, for teens. And it doesn't tend to work as well when you are putting it in the mouths of adults. So, for example, on Buffy, uh, her mentor Giles only uses Buffy speak um, in, in very uh, ironic ways. He doesn't speak that way normally. That's something that Buffy and her friends do. So a lot of that Buffy speak and the kinds of language that we see on Buffy, that brand of wit it is present in Firefly. And I think I don't think it works as well. Um, uh, we saw it a little bit on Angel, but it was primarily Cordelia who tended to talk that way. We didn't see Angel using it a lot. We didn't see Wesley, um, the uh, very intelligent Brit or whatever, using it. Um, and on Dollhouse after uh, after Firefly, uh, the main Buffy speak uh, uh, character was Topher, the irreverent programmer who was uh, a perfect fit for it. Um, and then we also see it, it popping up to some degree in the Marvel movies. Um, but comic book movies also tend to have that lighthearted, youthful feel. They are or were originally written uh, in large part for younger audiences. And it works well, particularly when someone like Tony Stark is, is mouthing off in Whedon dialogue terms. Um, it actually in the, the most recent um, Marvel movie, uh, I think it didn't work as well coming from James Spader's uh, portrayal of the uh, artificial intelligence Ultron. Uh, it was really fun to hear James Spader speaking Joss Whedon lines. I loved that, but it didn't really fit the character because of the tone that Whedon's language brings with it. 
So I think a lot of the characters on Firefly really shouldn't be speaking in quite that um, unfettered Whedon language. Uh, an example of this that, that does kind of gall when I'm when I'm watching Firefly is the use of the word shiny. Uh, shiny is a word that Buffy would absolutely say. It's a word that Cordelia on Angel would say. I don't mind if Kaylee says it. She's young. She's innocent. I don't mind if Wash says it. He's the class clown and he's a, clearly a Joss Whedon stand in. So that's fine. I don't think Mal should ever, ever say shiny. He's broody, uh, at least some of the time, uh, and, and takes himself so seriously. It, it doesn't fit with this lighthearted, juvenile um, tone that, that the word has. I can't remember if Inara or Book ever says shiny, but they shouldn't. Um, and I don't think Simon and River ever should either. I don't even really like hearing it from Jane uh, because it has this sort of it sounds like Joss Whedon and they're not all Joss Whedon, even if they are his creations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think some of the clever dialogue on Firefly, the lines are really funny and they're really clever, but they're just funny and clever. And they sound to me more like Joss Whedon in sort of a generic way where I could just as easily imagine Buffy uh, or Cordelia or someone saying them. Uh, then they sound like something that would organically rise to the lips of a particular character uh, that Zoe specifically would say or that Mal specifically would say. So it's a little undifferentiated for me um, compared to some of his other work. I think he just got really excited about all of the clever things he had to say, and they were clever. They just didn't always fit the characters who said them. And see, that's interesting. The the, the shiny bit, I hadn't even thought about that, but... My memory, and you guys can let me know if my memory is failing here, is that when Book and Mal say shiny, I don't remember if Inara ever does, uh, but it, the way I remember it, they are delivering it in a, I, I, I guess, in a, a self-aware, quasi-ironic tone to where it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's not a bubbling over of enthusiasm, but it's a mockery of enthusiasm. Am, am, am I am I just coloring this coloring over this in my memory? I don't know. I don't know about the ironic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tend to see it uh, the way that uh, today we would use a word like cool. Uh, you, I mean, you can certainly make. I mean, you could easily make the same kind of argument. You know, the word cool uh, came out of youth culture, <coughs> but we all grew up, uh, and so uh, you'll find you know. Um, you know, middle-aged people uh, looking. Oh, yeah. Well, this is. Well, I thought it was cool, but it turns out it's not. Uh, in a completely non-ironic manner, and that's that's kind of you know that. It's my 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 one dis- disagreement here. I mean, so uh, it's a shocker. Uh, you know, I'm going to completely agree with Alexis um, on, <laughs> in this section. Uh, I I especially agree about the glaring absence of Chinese people. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. was a huge, <laughs> massive um, lacuna there. Um, I, I am a fan of Shiny, though. I think it's, I, I don't think it's quite as lighthearted and juvenile, especially the way that uh, the the line is delivered by uh, some of the characters. Mm-hmm. And I, and I guess the old timey stuff. I, what I enjoy so much about that is not that it is present, but that Mal seems to have exclusive rights to it. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the scenes that I remember best are the ones where, you know, Mal does drop something out of a cowboy novel while everyone else is talking basically like people in the 90s. And, I mean, that, like, like I said, I mean, that disconnect is what uh, I enjoyed so much about this series 
again, I mean, I, I it might just be my own, you know, uh, my own sense of television's artificiality, but the uh, inconsistencies in character don't bother me near as much when it comes to dropping the one-liners. I, I have to say, I would have loved it if we'd seen like an old-time Western novel in Mal's bunk and had like a conversation where Zoe rolled her eyes at Wash, saying him and his Western phrasing, "I wish he would stop reading those stupid books." That would have done a lot to endear him to me, uh, just as a, a human, uh, not. Uh, uh, not smug, not sort of uh, self-aggrandizing touch for him, and also as a nod toward when those choices are deliberate and when they're just people getting rushed and sloppy or trying to placate a network exec. <laughs> that would have so, yeah, been funny. That that would have been, but I I don't know. I mean I, and, and maybe it's I maybe I'm just a shallow TV watcher, <laughs> but I I think too much backstory on that end would have ruined some of the charm of it. You know, if if we had to have some sort of narrative explanation for why Malcolm Reynolds talks so funny. Yeah, and I, I don't know if that point would work for any of the non-crew characters. I mean, we get... I'm thinking about uh, some of the scenes with Patience uh, over on Whitefall. Um, mm-hmm. She talks old-timey Western. Uh, we get... Um, uh, we, I mean, we, we certainly don't get that with somebody like Niska, but uh, uh, we get that in, uh, in uh, Heart of Gold. Uh, we get uh, some of that stuff uh, in, uh, um, I'm blanking on the name of the episode, uh, the, the one in, uh, when the, uh, the, the, the villagers kidnap um, uh, Simon and River. Uh, so I, 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 I would find, okay. I would have liked something along the lines of what you're talking about uh, to explain why some of the characters sound like uh, Western novels, uh, while people like Badger and Niska and uh, some of the others don't. Particularly since Niska sounds like a culture that some that that supposedly did not survive. Like he's right. not sounding yeah. like Chinese <laughs> or American. So no. somehow also evil Russian. Uh, uh, stereotypes also survive. Um, oh, I uh, thought he was German. Oh, I, I guess I don't know. I, I thought he was. I, don't, Russian. I, I, maybe, I saw maybe him as. German. I, I thought he was Russian or Eastern European myself, but uh, something oh, okay. not Chinese or American. <laughs> yeah, that's just how tough uh, R- Russian mobsters are. They are able to survive the destruction of Earth that was, uh, even if uh, nobody else from their civilization does. And also Cockney uh, uh, thieves. Right, that's that's the there too. Uh, yes, Badger, Badger, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But Badger, I mean, what's he not going to survive? That's all. I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, Charles, I, I want you to talk a little bit about the Reavers since we've mentioned them in passing, but haven't really treated them. Um, what sort of psychiatric dystopia emerges in the motion picture that isn't there in the television series? Okay, uh, well, the Reavers are uh, uh, bands of maniacal savages <coughs> uh, who roam space like space pirates. Uh, they encounter a ship or a settlement, uh, and they they attack it. They send out these raiding parties, and they attack. Um, they torture, they rape, they kill, they eat. Um, we do get... Uh, so, yeah, they're 
cannibals uh, as well as uh, all the rest of this stuff. Um, the one exception that we do get in the series, in the episode Bushwhacked, uh, the Reavers spared one victim uh, because they thought it would be more fun to force him to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the horror was to such a level that uh, the character had a psychotic break and believed himself to be a, re- a Reaver. So... It would have. Okay, this is another one where um, some further, some more episodes and further development would have been good, uh, because uh, an ins- an inconsistency that even the rest of us who are hardcore uh, Died in the Wolf fans uh, do acknowledge is that we have these uh, completely berserk animalistic savages who are somehow able to cooperative cooperatively maintain a um, complicated. Uh, fleet of uh, spaceships and engage in coordinated <laughs> <Right>. uh, raids. <laughs> and uh, w- when they attack, apparently they have enough self-restraint to say to each other, no, 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 dudes, uh, don't eat that one. It would be more fun to just tie him up and let him watch. So, I mean, there, there's a sadism, but they're they're berserk, but they're not really berserk, but they're still berserk. And in the movie, they're way berserk um yeah it uh, and uh, when we overhear radio chatter uh when the crew is trying to quietly pass through reaver territory mostly it sounds like a zombie uh movie there's sort of there's there's moaning and screaming and snarling going out on the airwaves so i don't know maybe at, at some point they develop a a reaver language uh in which if you're trying to say all right let's get uh, you know 50 people together and form a raiding party what you actually put on the radio is <laughs> So, I don't know, maybe. <clears throat> anyway, uh, we get the origin of the Reavers uh, in the Serenity film. Uh, one major plot point is uh, the lost planet of Miranda um, that uh, they, they, have, they have to track down. And they find Miranda, and everybody on the entire planet is dead. Uh, the, the crew uncovers records to find out uh, what happened to everybody, uh, and turns out that the Alliance government introduced, uh, the, the chemical G23 Paxilin hydrochlorate, or simply Pax, uh, which Latin for peace, uh, to, like the name, pacify the population by artificially inhibiting aggression. <coughs> it doesn't work. Uh, for the great majority of the population, it works, but it works way too well uh, because they become pacified, they become passive. They become passive to the point that they lose all motivation and they just lay down uh, and let themselves die. Um, there is a tiny fraction of the population, though, uh, where the Pax chemical has the opposite effect, uh, magnifying their aggression, and that's where the Reavers came from. They were an unfortunate side effect. <coughs> and this raises all kinds of fun stuff that we could get into. Uh, the most direct connection in the film is... Uh, it, it involves uh, a character called the Operative. Uh, the Operative is a government assassin who is hunting down uh, River and Simon, and uh, he describes himself as a necessary evil, uh, playing a role. So we're getting back to our, our narrative here. Uh, he plays a role in a grand progressive vision of creating a perfect world, a world. Uh, his words here: a world without sin. Um, he acknowledges that he himself is a monster and he will have no place in this uh, uh, th- this utopia. <coughs> uh, but 
for, but that is, that's the role that he's cast for himself. Uh, he is a player in this uh, progressive narrative of creating a world without sin. And then later in the film, Mal says to him, I'm going to show you a world without sin, and then plays the recordings, uh, showing what happened uh, to the people on the planet uh, Miranda. Um, so uh, what Whedon's showing here is that this uh, a, a perfect world cannot be created through these kinds of artificial and coercive uh, means. <clears throat> now, I've been I, I've been doing some some work uh, looking at some of these themes in psychology, um, and uh, those of you who you know, uh, it. it Listeners, if you want to tune in uh, to an upcoming uh, Christian Humanist Profiles episode, uh, I will be interviewing uh, Heather Vasek, uh, and we will be talking about this uh, specifically looking at uh, 19th century um, yeah, inst- uh, psychiatric institutions. <clears throat> but this is something that has come up in uh, some of my own work as well. So I'm going to launch uh, for a little bit here. Um this idea of using uh, technology, in this case, uh, psychiatric drugs, uh, to create a utopia, um, this plays into uh, some 19th and 20th century uh, scientific progressivist optimism uh, as a general cultural uh, theme. Uh, now, central to progressivism is the belief in the perfectibility of the human condition through a combination of hard work and science. <clears throat> and this forms a, uh, a master narrative uh, for um, the decisions uh, that are made uh, by people in our own world and, in this case, uh, uh, characters in the, uh, the, the Firefly-verse. <clears throat> but what we end up finding is that uh, this optimism carries uh, a potential for profoundly negative consequences. So, like I said, I'm going to get into this in more detail uh, in the, the Profiles episode, but the 19th century was a time of tremendous scientific utopian optimism. <clears throat> we get uh, the 19th century, we're having tr- uh, wonderful advances in science, and there is this pervasive uh, co- attitude uh, in, uh, in culture that there is nothing that cannot be solved uh, if we just science this thing hard enough. Uh, we get advances in, and, and there is a lot of good stuff that comes out of this. We get a lot of advances in technology, a lot of advances in medicine, <clears throat> um, but there also ends up being a dark side to this. Uh, one of the big dark sides uh, ends up being when we start applying uh, the, the, this idea that we can make it better if we science it more uh, to warfare, and we get World War I, uh, which was a tremendous kick to the sack to this uh, sort of this uh, progressivist utopianism um, at that time. <coughs> and uh, in, in the ni- in, during the 19th century, though, care for the mentally ill actually worsened uh, during this time, because uh, a lot of what was going on in the institutions did not fit this optimistic, enthusiastic um, uh, narrative. Uh, the the mentally ill didn't, you know, they didn't get with the program and be cured uh, when we start applying uh, our new 19th century understandings of psychiatry uh, to their cases, uh, and the. 
the, the, the conditions in the asylums uh, just worsen. Uh, they get overcrowded. They end up underfunded. They end up uh, squalid, really bad conditions. <clears throat> and um, we see a whole bunch of things going on. The, the, the institutions get moved out of the cities, so we are physically distancing ourselves from them. Uh, we, you know, culturally, uh, we, we see a, uh, a lower level of compassion compared to what we see uh, in uh, some of the prior centuries. Um, because this is, you know, they, they don't fit uh, this, especially American... Um, this American technological optimism. Uh, we, we see this again. Uh, we get into the early 20th century, and uh, we get the wonderful idea that the way that we are going to science our way through this is uh, through eugenics. So we are going to sterilize all the inferiors, and that's how we're going to science our way to a perfect world. <clears throat> Later in the 20th century, uh, we get the radical behaviorists. We get people like uh, Watson, and especially people like B.F. Skinner, uh, who say that we uh, th th they're wildly optimistic uh, theorists. We are going to completely reshape society using modern scientific behavioral technologies. And uh, we end up with some people who are, you know, thoroughly enthused uh, by this grand optimistic uh, vision of progress. <coughs> um, uh, Skinner writes uh, Walden 2, which is a really bad book. Um, Unless you're interested in Skinner's ideas about uh, reshaping societies using uh, behavioral science, um, then it's a very interesting book. As literature, it's a horrible, horrible book. Uh, painfully horrible. I'm going to stop talking about how horrible it is and get back to my point. Uh, anyway, we get these attempts to create Walden II communities. Uh, and what ends up, there was a number of these. We're going to show the world what happens when we build societies based on modern behavioral science. And these communities failed hard. <clears throat> and they failed hard because this is what happens when you try to reshape the human condition using your brilliant abstract theories. Um, you end up with these uh, Procrustean uh, bed uh, societies in which we end up... Uh, we end up with leaders saying, no, no, trust us, trust us. We're only going to mangle the human condition slightly, and then everything will be wonderful if you just let us do it. So we get people like uh, like John Watson uh, saying that in the perfect, and we, we see some of this in, uh, uh, not quite as extreme, but we still see this sort of thing in Walden too. We're going to get rid of families, because families are this wellspring of pre-scientific, pre-modern, sentimental mush, uh, and horrible injustice justices because parents tend to like their own children better uh, than they like strangers' children. So in an ideal society, uh, we would take everybody's children away from them and they would be raised in group homes by trained professionals. And then everything would be wonderful because uh, we wouldn't have all of this silly sloppy sentimentality and they would be raised the modern scientific way. <coughs> uh, and so we get these uh, these Walden II communities, and people start going, all right, so um, now about the children, uh, and, and then everybody who came, who, who uh, you know, has children, uh, sort of took a look at them and said, okay, uh, wait, what? You're going to do what, you're what now? Uh, could we take a vote on that? 
Yeah, about the voting, we're not going to do that too because democracy is a pretty bad idea because uh, that's also grounded in some pre-modern uh, sentimental philosophical notions. Uh, in reality, society should be run by the people who are properly trained uh, to run it, uh, which would be me. Uh, not you. Uh, so, no, we're not going to do any voting. Uh, instead, the, the, the community managers are going to manage, uh, and the rest of you are going to smile and nod and do as you're told. Uh, okay, can we take a vote on the whether or not we're going to take a vote thing? <coughs> so, turns out, when you push against human the, the realities of human nature, uh, reality pushes back. Uh, and you can end up with uh, some really some really negative consequences. Uh, one of the you know, current iterations of the downside of this uh, psychological optimism <coughs> um, uh, we can find in certain areas, and I'm going to try to be precise in my language here because um, despite what I'm about to say, I am actually a big fan of the positive psychology movement. I do a lot of my work in the positive psychology movement. Uh, I'm in the middle of writing a positive psychology textbook. Generally speaking, I am pro-positive psychology. But <coughs> some that it carries a dark potential if we don't if we're not careful. Uh, there was some research that came out uh, looking at uh, positive attitude and medical outcomes. And one of the things that these researchers found was that uh, breast cancer patients who maintained a positive attitude uh, had greater survivability and greater recovery rate. Uh, and what ended up happening is people uh, got on board with this uh, and said. Okay, we can optimism our way out of cancer. Uh, and so we need to talk to people about keeping a positive outlook. Uh, we, they need to have a fighting spirit. They need to have a positive attitude. Uh, that, so what ends up happening when you don't have a positive attitude? What happens if uh, you start saying, uh, I, I just don't feel it. I don't think I'm going to get through it. I've had a horrible day. I'm having bad reactions to the treatments, and I cannot maintain a positive attitude. Well, what ended up happening is that we have this long list of these women Women being shunned uh, because uh, the, some of these communities, well-intentioned communities that are supposed to help uh, people who are struggling with cancer uh, to, uh, to, 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 to to get through it uh, and to support each other, they're saying uh, they're saying to these people, "You are poisoning our atmosphere with your negative attitude, and you need to knock it off." So uh, there was a, there was a, a social uh, negative repercussion. Um, there was a burden of guilt that was placed on these people if they were not able to maintain a positive attitude, <coughs> and so. Uh, it, it was it's it's this really interesting moment in uh, the the research literature. Uh, there was some follow up research that was done using better methods, and using better methods, uh, the researchers ended up finding nothing. Uh, turns out you cannot optimism your way out of cancer. Uh, now, if we're talking about things like stress-related disorders, yes, keeping a positive attitude will help with things like that, but you cannot uh, positive attitude a tumor away, and this is stuff that I I hadn't seen before in the research literature. Uh, researchers expressing relief at a null finding, because they think now, you know, maybe now we can stop putting the, the pressure on these people. <coughs> now, to try and bring this back to, you know, Serenity to try and bring this back to Firefly. Um, in this case, uh, the the alliance uh, 
uh, is very much in this progressivist mold. Uh, we see this in the opening scene in the film Serenity. They can, they call themselves, uh, a society of the, of enlightenment. Uh, they want everything orderly, centrally managed, uniform, run in a top-down manner. Uh, anybody who disagrees with this, by the way, is just a backwards yokel, uh, or a savage, uh, or an ignoramus. Um, and uh, what they're going to do is they are going to uh, use modern science to create a perfect world. Uh, and they pushed against reality, and reality pushed back. Uh, it was it, it, It's about their, it, the Alliance's arrogance. They were arrogant enough to think that conquering the outer planets and imposing their order represents an improvement of the human condition. Um, they were arrogant enough to think that they can then perfect the human condition through through involuntary psychiatric medication, uh, and their arrogance created monsters. Well, Charles, unfortunately, I also cannot optimism my way out of my commitment that I've got to be at in not very much time. Uh So I'm going to head for the exit here. Uh, But before we head out the door, I do want to remind our listeners that special episodes of Book of Nature, which will release tomorrow, and Christian Feminist Podcast, which will release Friday, are coming down the pike soon, and that their conversations are going to dig into some questions that ours decidedly didn't. But since this is a one-episode podcast about a very rich topic, I want to close out by going around the horn and letting each of us talk for just a minute about another conversation that this show offers to start. Alex, I'll ask you to... Alexis, pardon me. I'll actually ask you to start and then trade Charles the microphone for Vera once you're done. Um, yeah, sure. I think uh, one conversation that I would love to see uh, is a discussion of authority uh, versus autonomy. Uh, in the Firefly verse, it seems like the one is almost always bad and the other is almost always good. And um, how that fits with the American idea uh, of sort of the worship at the altar of autonomy and freedom from interference uh, and how that intersects with the Christian idea of godly authority uh, in the local church, uh, even and then to some degree in the home um, and, and ultimately to God, where we do not uh, adhere to the, the worship of autonomy. Um, but in fact, affirm that that good authority is is good and it is a worthwhile thing. And sacrificing our independence for uh, obedience to authority can be good. So I'd love to sort of delve into sort of the modern American ideas of autonomy and authority versus Christian versus Firefly, and how do those uh, agree or disagree? All right, Charles, you want me to trade the mic for Vera? <laughs> Vera is a Callahan full bore auto lock with customized trigger, double cartridge, thorough gauge. That's the best gun made by man. Okay, I'm going to want her back when we're done recording. Um, so, so first off, I would also love that topic. That would be a great topic to get into. Um, what? Just one last little bit. Uh, uh, you know, we're doing some more psychology here. Um, they got the neuropsychology of River's brain wrong. Uh, they, they say that uh, when the Alliance cut up her brain, they stripped her amygdala. Uh, stripping the amygdala would eliminate fear and aggressive behavior. It would eliminate the ability to read emotions from other people's facial expressions. Um, it would not actually do the things that it did. So they got the neuropsychology wrong. Um, but there is some more fun stuff that we could do here. I mean, there's a in- possible interesting connection. Uh, increased amygdala activity is associated with more aggressive behavior. Could there be a reaver connection? Could there be like, could, could reaver and river, uh, be, uh, part of, uh, sort of the same research program? Uh, I don't know. Could be fun to talk about. 
And I'll wrap it up by saying that one of the interesting characteristics of this show is that even though, as Alexis noted, you sometimes get a flattening out of dialogue so that different characters' voices don't really come across as different enough, one thing that the show does fairly well, I think, is the variety of setting. Uh, when you're dealing with local law, when you're dealing with the sort of outlaw bands, uh, whether, whether you're dealing with, you know, the, the brutal Eastern European or German, depending on how you hear the accent criminals, uh, you get genuinely different places in this show. The core is different from the rim, uh, and, you know, deep space has its own character. Uh, that really kind of make this fun. So, uh, for those of you who are subscribed to the Christian Humanist Podcast, we're going to be back next Tuesday with our annual Christmas episode. You'll just have to listen in to see what that is. Of course, the crossover episodes will continue this week. Please subscribe and download uh, Book of Nature and Christian Feminist Podcast. In the meantime, you can catch us on uh, ChristianHumanist.org. Uh, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com uh, or the email addresses they'll announce at the end of the other respective episodes that I won't get wrong here. Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Amber Lee Copeland is our audio editing intern extraordinaire. Kristen Philippic is our press, press liaison. I almost said intern there. Sorry, Kristen. And I am Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Alexis Neal and Charles Hackney saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be